it is the most elaborate parable in the Gospel of Mark. And it is shocking, it is stunning, it is filled with detail. It's, it's got two Old Testament passages that, that, that are referred to, one from Isaiah chapter 5 and one from Psalm 118, kind of welded together. Jesus weaves together this prophecy from the Old Testament. He reveals to not only the rulers of Israel, but the crowd that's listening there, how those two prophecies come together. And in doing so, he pronounces both a judgment and provides an invitation. to judgment upon the rulers of Israel and an invitation to the crowd, to Israel around, to, to now follow the right leader after the other leaders have been rejected. You remember at the beginning of the week, this is the Passion Week, you remember at the beginning of the the week, the Lord enters Jerusalem as the Messianic King. He's never done that before. He's always shunned the limelight, and in order to, uh, he, he, He doesn't want to be taken before it's time, but now it's God's perfect time. And so, He sets the wheels of the confrontation in motion with presenting Himself as the Son of David. He rides into the Temple Mount, He inspects it, He comes back the next day and asserts kingly authority over it. He attacks the temple system. He cleanses it. And with absolute authority, he shuts down the profane worship that's taking place in in his own temple. He he declares an Old Testament passage there as, as well. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den, a den of thieves. And so he stops that. Then a beautiful scene, the following day, Jesus begins teaching and preaching the gospel for the first time in a long time. Sure, there was an echo of the gospel there from the, from the, the Old Testament, the Word of God that was, that was proclaimed, but the leadership had been corrupt. And so Jesus walks freely in the temple proclaiming the gospel, inviting men again to turn to Him in repentance and faith. And as Jesus is teaching, as we saw last time, a delegation confronts Him. They're absolutely silent the day before when He, when he uh, attacks the temple and He turns over the money changers. But today, they come with a delegation and they, they question His authority. And you remember they asked two questions. By what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? And there's this interchange between Jesus and the, the, the three parties of the Sanhedrin, and, and he asks them a question in return and, and exposes them and leaves them speechless again. The passage that we have before us today is part two of that scene. Jesus says at the end of Mark 11, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, but then he gives them a parable. So he doesn't answer their direct question, but he clearly gives them an answer. And while he refuses to answer their questions about his authority, he gives them a parable that reveals their own judgment for rejecting his authority. If you put all four of these scenes together, Jesus presents his authority in the triumphal entry. He exercises his authority in the cleansing of the temple. They oppose his authority by questioning him, and now they are judged for rejecting his authority in the parable of the vineyard, which is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through through 12. God had made 
Israel a vineyard. And he planted that vineyard in the earth, and it was to bear fruit. And God had given the responsibility of that vineyard, the stewards of that vineyard, to the leaders, the priesthood, and the leaders of Israel. They were to be the keepers of the household. And yet, rather than doing that, they took ownership for what they were only stewards of, and they are even now rejecting the Son. And Jesus shows us what will happen and where we fit into into that picture. This is not a normal parable. It's stunning. And it has obvious imagery, being the, the vineyard, Israel being the vineyard. But it's not normal. It's it, This parable is actually meant to be understood. Now, if you remember, all the way back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus pronounces a judgment when he's preaching in Galilee over and over, and they keep rejecting, they keep rejecting, they keep rejecting. And Jesus says, from this point forward, I will speak only in parables so you will not understand. The parables are a judgment. And so he speaks in parables, and it's only revealed to the disciples and to others who are willing to receive his truth. And so if you want to know God, you, you listen to what he has to say. If you obey that and listen to that, he'll give you more. If you continue to reject and, and, and stiff arm, then, then hardness comes and, and you'll not hear anything. And so the parables were actually a judgment, but this one was actually written and was given so that they would understand. It's very clear. We, Mark tells us in verse 12, they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Well, they can't understand that unless they understand the parable. It's not normal because it's meant to be understood. It, it, it's also sourced in, this, in an Old Testament parable. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is almost verbatim. That's not normal. Normally... There's a common everyday occurrence, and Jesus uses that as a story to illustrate something. So he draws from an Old Testament parable. And giving the parable contains a fulfillment and, and also an invitation. It's, it's an invitation to the crowd to, to follow the, the true leader. The landowner's representatives are the prophets, the final one being John the Baptist, and they had rejected him, and they're about to do the same to their Messiah. And just like they refused to acknowledge John was from heaven, they also refused to acknowledge Jesus was the beloved son from the landowner. And because they refused to acknowledge that, they're going to mistreat him like they did John. They killed them both, even though Herod is the one that did that to John. They rejected John. They'll not only kill the son of the landowner, but they're going to cast his body over the vineyard wall in an act of indignity. They don't even bury him. That's how d- despised he will be. And the end result is a severe judgment. One's immediate and one's coming in the future. The immediate is they're going to lose their right to represent the landowner. They're going to lose their right to be stewards over the vineyard. And the judgment that's coming doesn't come till the landowner arrives. But when it comes, and when he does, it will be, it'll be severe. And in telling this parable, it's an invitation to the crowd. It forces the crowd to choose. The leaders of Israel that had been in the seat of, of leadership that they're to follow and they're to listen to are being rejected by God. 
And the people must now choose between them and Jesus. He exposes them here very clearly. He does it publicly. There's no middle ground. Jesus is God's representative. And from this point on, the people of God are found not in the old temple, but in the new temple that God's building. Not in the temple rulers or their system, but in the new temple that Jesus is building. And He is the chief cornerstone of that, of that temple. Let me show you how the passage breaks down. It's, it's, it's fairly simple. There's a condemning parable that begins in verse 1 and ends in verse 8. It's very dramatic. We'll walk through that. We'll, we'll try to get into, under the surface and, and try to hear it the way that, that the people would have heard it. That goes through the end of verse 8. And then Jesus draws the lesson of the parable out in two questions. Now, normally when he gives a parable... He will state the, the point of the parable at the end. He makes a statement. But here he draws, draws out, he has them answer, give the point of the parable by two questions. And the first one is found in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? It's a question concluding the parable. What do you think the owner's going to do in light of, of the story that I just told you? And the second question is about a prophecy. Verse 10. Have you not even read this Scripture? It's a question. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And the response is found in verse 12. The leaders didn't like what they heard. They didn't received the parable, they could tell it was spoken against them, and so they leave because they can't take him, but will in a few days. So I would say, if you just want a theme, here's the judgment for the rejection of Jesus, and we'll see who that judgment is on as the parable unfolds. There's an outrageous uh, rejection. It's outrageous. It's a rejection, and it's outrageous. That's, That's the point of the parable. There's, there's a, an obvious answer to this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? There's an obvious answer. And they get the answer. They, in fact, even state the answer back to Jesus. And then there is a marvelous vindication. In the mystery of God, you will see how the Lord wraps all of this up and actually vindicates the one who was rejected in verses 10 through 12, an outrageous objection, an obvious answer, and a marvelous vindication. And if you didn't get it, you'll get them one at a time. The outrageous rejection that's illustrated in the parable. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. Now, if you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, there are actually three parables that Jesus speaks, but Mark only gives us the second one. All three have the same point. Somebody is displaced. Here, the leaders are displaced for, for other vine growers, somebody else to, to, to take care of the, of the vineyard. But Jesus begins to speak a parable. And the, the, the illustration that the Lord uses is that of a rented vineyard and a vineyard owner. It, it's an arrangement that would be very common. We still have arrangements like this today. You might think of it like a franchise. And so, I own a business... And I would go build a building, 
and I would stock the building, I would stock the business, I would, I would set it up in order for it to run, and then I would turn it over to you to run the business, and in turn, you would pay me rent, and you would give me profits from the, from, the, from the business. This is the arrangement, but it's in an agricultural setting. Landowners would purchase land, they would rent it out to tenants, and the tenants would work the land like sharecroppers. And they would render a specific share of the, of the produce at harvest time. It was a commercial enterprise. It, it involved an investment with an expect for a return. There's an investment by the owner, and the owner expects fruit in return. And it provided both with a, with a good arrangement. And the landowner in this story has purchased and prepared the land. He cleared it, he, Jesus says. He's taken rocks. And he's made terraces for a wall around it. He's, he's made a wine press expecting fruit. You don't make a wine press unless you do everything to expect fruit from it. He also has a tower. He builds a tower where the, the workers would shelter and to keep watch against thieves. And the, the description ends in verse uh, 1. And he rented it out to vine growers and he went on a journey. That's probably back where he lived. So here is the guy, he comes, he buys the land, he prepares it, he sets up, the, he sets up the, the vine growers, he sets them up in business, and he leaves. But then in verse 2, it, the story takes a turn. Verse 2, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers, a servant, one of his representatives, the owner doesn't go himself, in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the, from the vine growers. That normally took place between four to five years. When you, when you started a vineyard, you didn't get the first crops off of it. You didn't expect rent until four years. And so here's the agreed time, all agreed to ahead of time. The servant comes, the representative comes to get the, the produce. That's why the owner sent one of his servants who would be authorized to to represent him. He would have documentation and he would represent the landowner and they'd give him fruit. All of that would have been totally normal. But here comes the, the shocker. Now imagine, if you will, before you read verse 3, that you are sitting on the Temple Mount, a large crowd with Jesus, and he, the master teacher, is has been teaching you the gospel, has been telling you things like the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard, but I say unto you, and he's walking freely in the temple after he's cleansed everything, and this large delegation comes up, which you know are the rulers, and they begin to question him, and then Jesus starts telling this parable. Everyone, no doubt, was hanging on his every word, and everyone would have been tracking with, oh yeah, I understand this. This would be normal. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know a cousin who has a he's, a... he's a vine grower. He works in a situation like this. They would have been tracking along until they got to verse 3. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The word beat means to, to thrash. Rather than send this, dele uh, this delegate back with the agreed rent or the agreed produce, they rejected his documentation. They send him back to the owner empty-handed and bruised. 
and that would have shocked the crowd. Now, they're probably really intrigued. I wonder where this story's going. No one would do that. To refuse to pay rent would be a rejection of the landowner's claim on the land. It would be like saying, this place is not yours, it's ours. And to beat the representative would be a direct challenge. It would be, it would be come and take it if, if, you, if you can. And, and you just didn't do that if you were a vine grower. The, the landers had, had an army, and he also had the law, and it would be a foolish thing to do, and the crowd would have known it. But upon his return, rather than sending out a delegation of soldiers to cast them out and arrest them, the landowner does something else. Look at verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant. Rather than soldiers, he sends another, another servant. And the crowd is probably thinking, wow, that, that's a twist. That's pretty patient. That's not what I would have done. I would have come and claimed what was rightfully mine. They agreed to this and, and they didn't produce it. And Jesus goes on. And they wounded him in the head. They, they literally bashed him in the head. They stoned him. And they treated him shamefully. That's a, it's a, it's a word that means to treat with contempt. It's a, it's a form of disrespect. Mark doesn't tell us what specifically they did, but that would be something like shaving his head or plucking his beard. Sending him back in his tunic only. The purpose is provocation. It, again, without the agreed produce or without the agreed rent. Now, at this point, the crowd's thinking that's outrageous. I mean, you just don't do that. I mean, how, how horrible. Now, what will the landowner do, the crowd is probably thinking. And look at what it says in verse 5. And he sends another, a third. And that one they killed. And beyond a third, there's more. So many others beating some and killing others. He keeps sending servants. He keeps sending servants. He keeps sending servants. And the crowd's sitting there listening going, what in the world is wrong with this landowner? This is, this is nuts. They wounded him. They... It's the word where we get trauma. They traumatized him. They cast him out. The other gospels say they stoned him. And by this point, the, the listeners are thinking, this is, this is crazy. Why is he sending another? Why doesn't he crush these wicked tenants? They're thinking he should send an army and destroy him, destroy them. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 6. He had one more to send a beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. I would think that the crowd probably gasped at this point, listening. No one does that. He sends the most precious one the vineyard owner has. He, he sends his huias agapitas, his beloved son. Now, you've read Mark, so that what is echoing in your mind is the baptism and the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. But in their world, this is the firstborn. This is the heir to the landowner's fortune. 
and the landowner reasons that they'll respect my son. They've reject my, rejected my servants, but they'll respect my son. He's from my own loins. And while the landowner reasoned that, the, the tenants reasoned something else. Look, if you would, at verse 7. But the vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Then they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Before they just tried to keep the prophets, but now they plotted for the whole ball of wax. They want the land. And rather than the owner's son turning them and working out uh, the dispute, they were so wicked they murdered him in premeditation in order to get the whole vineyard. And they didn't only kill the son of the landowner, but they cast his body over the, over the vineyard wall. They didn't even bury him. It's a, as I said, it's an act of indignity. They, they cast him out. It's an outrageous rejection. And the crowd is feeling the outrage. And in the climax of that outrage, Jesus then asks this question. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Luke says, when he comes. It reminds me of my favorite illustration from D.A. Carson when fourth grade boys were asked what they would do if their little clay creations that they had made would rise up and reject their authority, and one little fourth grade boy yells out, I'd smash him to bits. That's what God should do. He should smash us to bits. We're His creation. We thumbed our nose in His face. We do that day in and day out when He has provided so many things for us. What should the owner of this vineyard do when He comes? He should smash him to bits. That's what they're thinking. Judgment is the obvious answer to this question. And in verse 9, the answer comes. He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to, to others. Here's the judgment for those that had the lease but failed to produce any fruit and took ownership themselves. Matthew says the crowd is the one who answered. It's like they're listening. Jesus answers the question. The crowd can't hold, hold it back any longer. The crowd says in Matthew 21, they'll bring those wretches to their wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to those who will pay him the proceeds in the proper season. They'll bring those wretches to their wretched end. The two words. You can just hear the passion that's there. The crowd answers the question from Jesus. And with a Nathan to, to David-like encounter, they end up pronouncing judgment on themselves. This is not the first time that God's used this methodology, is it? You remember David, Bathsheba, and Uriah? Nathan the prophet coming to David and he tells him the little story about the little ewe lamb and the man had, had this entire flock, but he, but, he, but he took this man's single, only lamb. And David says, that man should be smashed to bits. 
And Nathan says, Thou art the man. That's what Jesus is doing here. You are the men. You are the vine growers. You are the ones who were tending to the vines. And even the leaders join in in the answer. And they foolishly condemn themselves. And you say, that's pretty foolish. Do you realize that you do the same thing whenever you point out, when you judge somebody else and you point out their sin? You know that's what Romans chapter 2 says? Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Do you understand what, what Paul is saying there? When you point out the sin of someone else, it shows that you know that there's sin. It proves that you know that there's a right and a wrong. And therefore, you have no excuse when you yourself do wrong. You can't say, well, I didn't know, I didn't know that there was such a thing as sin. I didn't know there was a, was a God. And you know my famous one, self-condemnation. When I told Pastor Joe Hutchinson, I'm a pretty good guy, just drink a beer every now and then, give the shirt off my back. And besides that, the church is full of hypocrites. And he said, you're right, there's room for one more. I'm a pretty good guy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. I'm not a pretty good guy. You're not a pretty good girl. There's nobody in here who's done good. And to pretend that you have, to pretend that you can stand before the bar of God makes you a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not somebody who sins. A hypocrite is somebody who pretends that they don't. And that's the problem. I don't need, how about this one? I don't need to come to church. I have my own relationship with God while I'm running or wherever. And in that you reveal you have no relationship with God because a relationship with God, First John says that you'll love the brethren You'll not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's the evidence of the fact that you love God. You love other people, specifically, first and foremost, God's people. And in this self-condemnation, there, there's two judgments. Notice what they say the owner will do. He's going to do two things. Verse 8, they took him and he killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. He's going to destroy the tenants, the current tenants. And then two, he will give the vineyard to others. He'll replace them and give the privilege to till the land, to tend the vines to another. Why wouldn't he, right? The parable highlights the immeasurable grace of the vineyard owner, servant after servant, servant after servant, beaten, dishonored, rejected. We could go through a countless list in the Old Testament of prophet after prophet after prophet that God sent to Israel, and they rejected prophet after prophet after prophet. And then the wickedness of the tenants even was about ready to happen to kill the son. The point of the parable, you probably have already figured out, Israel is the vineyard. The husbandmen are the religious leaders. The harvest time is, is the fruit of true worship. There should be true worship coming. The owner's God, the servants of the prophets, and the Son is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who's speaking this parable to them. 
Isaiah chapter 5 describes Israel as a vineyard of the Lord and depicts God's particular care of her. And this parable is an unmistakable reference to that, to that passage. And just like this parable, the Lord Himself planted His nation on a fertile hill. He removed all the stones. All the other peoples. He planted a choice vine. He, he provided a watchtower for protection. Some think that's the temple. And then it says He expected it to bring forth fruit. And it brought forth bitter berries, Isaiah says. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2 through 4, that song, that parable, ends with this question. O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. There's an invitation to judge. Jesus is doing the exact same thing here. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, Isaiah Men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. And they just had. And they pronounced the correct judgment. You'll be taking the vineyard from these leaders and transferring it to another. But there's a difference. It's a big difference. And if you don't understand this difference, you're going to mess up, mess up your eschatology. Because in Isaiah, the vineyard failed. But in this one, the vineyard didn't fail. There were produce. There was produce that God's vineyard produced. It's the vine dressers that failed. They refused to give the produce. There's nothing wrong with God's true vineyard. There's something wrong with the vine dressers. And in Isaiah, the vineyard is abandoned, and here it's going to be entrusted to new tenants. And Isaiah is a message of disaster. What's coming upon Israel, they're going to be scattered and this one is a message of hope. The leaders will be destroyed in this parable, and the vineyard survives, but, but it's now going to be tended properly. It's taken from the vine dressers. Notice what it says. He will come and destroy the vine drawers, the vine dressers, and he'll give the vineyard to others. The vineyard itself is not rejected. God still has plans for the nation of Israel which is only part of the people of God. The other part is the Gentiles, which are grafted in. But even now, it has the people of God has new leaders. And those new leaders follow after the new, the new stone. Luke alone records the crowd's gasp to this. They say, may genoita, may it never be. <laughs> they understood exactly what Jesus meant. The leaders of Israel had squandered the kingdom and they had not brought forth fruits that were required and God has given everything, salvation and deliverance and blessing and they were to be stewards of the vineyard but instead they consumed its fruit as owners rather than render it to the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. If God would do this to the leaders of His chosen people, the ones who had the covenants, what do you think He would do to us in the church? you think He would do any different? Read the book of Revelation in the first seven, the first seven letters to the churches that are there. you remember how each one of those ends? I will remove your lampstand. 
We just celebrated 75 years of our works. Is that what we said? Of God's glorious works. And if we ever fail to preach the gospel, if we ever fail to sanctify the church, to equip the church, if we ever fail to evangelize and try to reach the lost, God will be very patient to us. He may even send you a new pastor and another new pastor and another new pastor. And whether it's the leadership or whether it's the church body, God can remove us just like He removed Israel. They questioned Him, they despised Him, they rejected Him, and in a few more days, they're going to cast Him out of the very vineyard of God. They'll kill Him, and for that, the kingdom will be taken away and be given to a nation bearing its fruits. Israel today has no temple, no priesthood, no altar, no kingdom. And they occupy less than 15% of the land that God promised them. They'll occupy all of it one day, and they'll have all those things back. But today, the church is tending over the vineyard of God. And yet their rejection of the stewardship doesn't thwart God's plan. It actually fulfills it. This brings us to the final point. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus is now going to show them who the new vine dresser is going to be. <laughs> you failed tending my vineyard. And now God is going to show them who the new vine dresser is going to be. And it's going to be the Lord's doing, and it's going to be marvelous. It's going to be mind blowing in everyone's sight. It's going to be unexpected, it's going to be shocking. Look, if you would, at verse 10. Here's the second question. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now the scene shifts from a vineyard to a building, doesn't it? And he welds these two Old Testament passages together. Isaiah 5 and this psalm. It says, Jesus looked right at them, and He said, Have you not read what was written? Have you not even read this Scripture? And the parable hangs on these two questions. One is about the logical conclusion. What will the owner do? The crowd declares what he should do. And this question of the connection to Jesus. He is the rejected stone that becomes the exalted head of the church. It's the Lord Jesus Himself. And those that follow after Him will replace these leaders. There's a quotation from Psalm 118. And the rabbis attributed it to, to the Messiah. Historically, it was literally one of the building blocks of, of, of Solomon's temple that was rejected in construction. Now, this always makes me think about when we were, when my father was building a house, and we had a, we had a, a, a Japanese guy who lived in town who was a stonemason, and he built a, a fireplace that looked like it didn't have any mortar in it. I mean, it was amazing, and he was looking for work, and my dad gave him some work, and, and the deal was we had to bring him the stone, and I was a young boy. And we brought in 26 pickup truck loads of stone, and he used about two truckloads. 
And he went through every one, and he laid the entire fireplace out on the driveway, all the, all the different stones, and then he went inside and assembled it. And I was thinking, what is this crazy guy doing? I mean, just take the rock, put it in there. Why do I got to go get another, get another load of stone? Big stones. And that's what they would have done in Solomon's temple. And the keystone to the porch is this cornerstone. And one that was rejected ended up becoming the key to the entire temple. The stone which the builders rejected has become God's foundation stone. And this is the interpretation of the parable. Jesus says, The son that you will kill and reject actually is the one that you must receive. That will be the chief cornerstone in God's new temple. He'll be vindicated and you'll be judged by the actual rejected. Think about what he's saying here. The rejected son himself becomes the exalted, vindicated stone in God's plan. Jesus is saying, don't you understand that the one you are rejected Rejecting is the one you must align to in order to be accepted. And in the rejection and murder of Jesus, they're actually fulfilling God's plan. That's what's marvelous. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous. Their rejection of Jesus, their rejection of Jesus is actually fulfilling God's perfect plan. And also proving that they were not worthy caretakers of the vineyard. In rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the very cornerstone of God's new building. And without realizing it, they were doing God's will, which was marvelous to behold. That's what Jesus is saying to them. The one they reject becomes their rejection. And his rejection is what makes him the cornerstone of God's new temple. The rejected stone, scoffed and smitten and crucified, would rise again from the grave and become the foundation stone in a spiritual house not made with hands. That's what Jesus means when He says, I'm going to tear this temple down and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And here is the chief cornerstone. Here's the cornerstone of the temple, the first fruits of the temple. My death as a substitute for your sin and my resurrection, the vindication, here it is. And from this point forward, this is building the new temple of God, bringing together the two peoples. And He's raising up living stones. And you're part of those stones. You're part of that building. What's the first thing that Peter says in the book of Acts? Well, listen, Acts chapter 4. Let it be known unto you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has now become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Peter didn't lose that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in his epistle, he says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Listen, you also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God 
You are a spiritual building. And you only get into that building through Jesus Christ, the aligning to Him. But then you're also to produce fruit. You're like a vineyard. The first rejected by the religious leaders, affirmed by God in the resurrection now today, is still adding to this house. You say, what's the point? The point is the rejection of Jesus determines your rejection. What you do with Him, whether you align with Him, whether you believe His words, whether you repent, whether you believe, whether you become a follower, whether you become a disciple, will determine whether you're in God's people or whether you're not, whether you're in His vineyard, whether you're in His house. It's your response to Christ. Luke adds, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, but whoever it falls on will be ground to the dust. Whether you stumble over Christ or whether Christ falls on you in the very end, whether you stumble over Him in this life or, or whatever, you, He falls on you in judgment in the end, the result is the same. You will be judged. But you don't have to be. Because He's adding to that house if you'll get in line with the cornerstone. And like the leaders, you, you have to deal with Christ. You have to accept Him or you have to reject Him. And those who do acknowledge Him in salvation do so on His terms, not ours. He's the cornerstone by which all things are brought in line. He does not move as the foundation stone you do. And if you'll not move, then you'll stumble over Him. And if you persist, when He comes, He'll fall on you and bring irrevocable judgment. The very one who came to deliver the first time will become your destroyer. As the Father has given salvation to the Son, He's also given judgment to the Son. The first time as the Lamb, the second time as the Lion. And look at verse 12. The parable ends with their response. And they were seeking to seize Him. Did they get it? Yet they feared the people. For they understood that He spoke the parable against them. And so they left Him and went away. God speak this parable to you today? Well, you get two choices. You can either receive it, or you can know that God spoke to you, or maybe even against you, and you can leave. And go away. Should you bow your heads?